Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. creature through the water for more than two miles at lake champlain in new york state a sightings crew has been monitoring strange lake activity reported by dozens of credible eyewitnesses it's hard to imagine but the natural serenity of lake champlain is being disturbed disturbed by a monster reportedly lurking just below the surface of the lake sightings of a long serpent-like creature have been reported for nearly 300 years a pioneer's powder horn, dated September 29, 1700, bears the earliest recorded image of the Lake Champlain monster. Sightings have continued to the present day, but aren't often discussed in public. Probably 99% of the people have seen it, but they won't talk about it because you do get some ridicule. Lake Champlain is located on the border between New York and Vermont, extending northward into Quebec province in Canada. The locals have affectionately dubbed the monster Champ, but there is surprisingly little publicity or commercialism associated with this sea serpent. Only now, in the wake of new scientific information about the Loch Ness Monster, have eyewitnesses felt that they won't be ridiculed for coming forward. You could see underneath the water, it was huge black mass, it was just monster. It was scary, it was, it was that big. It was, you could see it had a definite body, shape of a body. Then you could see it definitely had a neck and a head. Then all of a sudden, up out of this water came this big black thing. I mean, it was huge, black and shiny. And then it went away. It wasn't a ripple or anything. And I got the pictures of it just going under the water, and you can see the little bumps, two bumps. I started as a disbeliever. I went right on past being a believer into a knower. It's four of us. We're out on the boat, um, looking, just taking an evening sail. And it was at that point, with no expectations of anything, that we began to see some very strange things going on. Up came the neck and the head, literally like my hand is doing. It turned and it looked at me, and it turned and it went right back down into the water. We took the camcorder out and then, in fact, champed or several champs were back again. I started screaming in fear. I found myself climbing on the canvas top of my boat, which I know doesn't hold me. That's how, how scared I was. When it comes to cryptids, one of the most famous of all is the Loch Ness Monster. However, there are many other lakes around the world where it is believed creatures from Earth's distant past have survived, even thrived. And some of these could well have more evidence to back them up than dear old Nessie. A great example is Champ, the mysterious denizen of Lake Champlain, who you heard described at the beginning of the show in that news clip from the early 1990s. Sightings of an unusual creature have been reported there for hundreds of years, as well as phenomena such as UFOs and ghosts. My guest for this episode is cryptozoologist and filmmaker Alexander Petikov. Alexander is a native of New England and in 2018 made a documentary called On the Trail of Champ, where he visited Lake Champlain the communities that sit on its shore, and met some of the people who have seen the creature, whatever it may be. In an upcoming documentary, he is investigating the numerous sightings of mountain lions in the northeastern United States, a species long thought to be extinct in that area. I talked with Alexander about how he has combined his loves of filmmaking and cryptozoology, and the insights he has gained from his projects as to what creatures such as Champ might be. It's been a little while since we last had a cryptozoology-themed episode, but I like to think that this more than makes up for that. Enjoy. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, man. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. It's great to have you on. So to, to start off with, just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in cryptozoology. Sure, yeah. I've just always kind of had a, uh, a liking for the unknown, I guess, since I was a kid. I, I remember hearing the story of the Yeti and... Uh, kind of these unknown hominids, Bigfoot and that sort of thing. And uh, from a young age, I was interested in paleontology and dinosaurs. So naturally, I was watching all sorts of documentaries on those subjects and cryptozoology. I was an armchair researcher for a long time during my youth. You know, I was reading all the books and the literature and everything regarding the subject. And then the blog scene, when that started kind of taking over in the, uh, the mid-2000s when I was into high school. And I kind of didn't really get into it too much in college. But once I got out, I started kind of producing documentaries of my own and I was like, this is a perfect 
uh, way to merge my passion for creating documentaries with cryptozoology, something I'm very passionate about. So the kind of merging those two passions was really what I did. And, and that's kind of led me down this path, I guess you could say. Okay, cool. Um, and what was the first film that you made that had a sort of cryptozoological angle to it? Sure. Yeah. The, the first one probably would have been Mystery at Loch Ness, which was, mm-hmm. I filmed that around 2015 and I think I released it early 2016. And it was just a short, uh, under 15 minute documentary just about the Loch Ness Monster based on a visit there and kind of uh, talking about the various theories and uh, speaking to people like Steve Feltham and some of the other investigators. Uh, and that kind of is what really spurred it all. That was my first foray into the cryptid, uh, cinema world i guess you could say so when you were making that film how did you approach it because i suppose around that time Loch Ness has sort of not been out of the news as much but perhaps Nessie wasn't as 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 popular a, a cryptid as perhaps it had been in the past when you when you were making that film what what is it what was it that you were sort of trying to get out of of that project yeah, absolutely. You're right. At that time, uh, definitely Loch Ness was in a bit of a dry spell. Let's say there was really no sightings for a couple of years. There wasn't much going on in the news. But once you visit there, you know, you see the amount of people that go there tourist wise. And it's it's kind of one of their main sources of income in that area. Yeah. And I just kind of approached it from the perspective of, you know, this is my chance to just cover the Loch Ness monster any way I can, you know, talk about the theories, talk about the different uh, kind of expeditions and some of the photographs and you just kind of sum it all up instead of uh, trying to prove it for myself just kind of an informational and educational documentary that's interesting just about sort of the mystery and it was really just a sort of little project I took on just kind of for fun and um, you know I was just intended for to be on YouTube and online and and that's actually how I met a lot of my good friends now in the cryptozoology world was people found that. So I thought that was kind of cool, but, but yeah, the approach I took was basically just trying to be as objective as possible and talk about, you know, Hey, even though uh, there's been people searching for the Loch Ness monster since the 1930s, there really hasn't been any evidence that's turned up that was conclusive. And, you know, just being honest about that and kind of talking about how the legacy of Nessie will live on in a way. Yeah. And how, how do you find the sort of cryptozoological community? Cause I get the impression that with certain cryptos, there there seems to be a a split in terms of of what these entities are. I'm I'm thinking in particular things like Bigfoot, where there are people who think that it's a, a living relic hominid or yep. some sort of lost lost ape that we haven't discovered yet, and then other people who think that it's more of a more of a supernatural creature. And I guess actually those two camps exist for quite a few cryptos. Do you find that? with this project that you did for Loch Ness and other projects that you've done, you find a range of opinions and, and the community is kind of split and delineated along those lines. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just in, in a lot of these different, uh, like you said, creatures, there's various camps and it's kind of always interesting to think about that because you have, you know, it, it's kind of a niche community as it is just in general, people who are into cryptozoology, let alone a singular creature like Bigfoot or Lake Monsters chupacabra or whatever the case may be and then there's camps within that that kind of they go at each other and uh, yeah i did i i think Loch Ness, for the most part during the time it's been researched has been thought of as a biological creature but there are of course people more in the modern context saying that perhaps there's a supernatural element to it and i think uh 2015 or 16 around the time i did my documentary is when the house that alistair crowley used to uh, perform rituals at at Loch Ness actually burned down, which is kind of interesting. Mm. And some people believe there's maybe a connection to that. I don't know. I mean, I, to be honest with you, the, the Loch Ness mystery kind of almost lost a little bit of its charm to me after, after visiting there and kind of seeing all the, the decades of disappointment and that sort of thing. I, I you know, I, I had it, I had a kind of in my mind on a pedestal because you grew up watching these documentaries about this subject and it's like, wow, this is really something so interesting. And then you visit the place and you see how much your tourism plays a part in it and all the human history. And uh, it just kind of left me a little bit disappointed, I suppose. I still reserve some, some hope for Nessie, but I think for the most part, things like Champ and other lake monsters intrigue me much more so than even Loch Ness anymore. I can see, I can see your your point there. It's like anything, isn't it? If you go to a popular tourist attraction and you want to go there to sort of engage with 
with that site. I, I'm thinking in particular like old places like castles and, and, and ruined abbeys and things like that. If they're, if they're yep. really busy and full of people, it's, it's hard to reconnect. It's hard to connect with, with that landscape, isn't it? So it, it, you're distracted by all the, all the noise, really. So it's, it's, you, you find it, I tend to find that I have a much more enjoyable experience <laughs> where, there are, where there are less people, where it's quieter and you can sort of, you know, engage with these places more intimately. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree. I think some of the other things I've looked into, probably mostly with Bigfoot stuff in North America, is there's a lot of areas where it's not really on the radar, but you still have encounters going on. You still have people that have stories to tell uh, when in areas that aren't really known for the subject. You know, you've got hot spots or whatever you want to call it, places like California or Pennsylvania now, uh, Ohio, lots of these states where you kind of associate Bigfoot with those areas, whereas an area like New England, where I live, isn't really associated with Bigfoot, even though we're now some of the most forested states in the country. There's lots of wilderness that you know rivals some other parts of the country, um, and there are plenty of stories going back decades. So I think it's kind of there's there's a lot less people investigating, let's say, New England than there are other parts of the country. So I think it it allows for, like you said, more of that kind of uh, more of an authentic, I guess, experience because you're really, you know, I'm, I'm quite certain some of the stories that I've looked into and encounters people I've interviewed have been, have never really been um, tapped into before, have not been kind of brought to the public before. And some of them still haven't because a lot of people want to remain anonymous in their encounters, but it's kind of trailblazing in a way. It's very interesting because uh, like I said, it's not really culturally present in this region. Hmm. Yeah. I I get the sense that where you are in in New England and Northeastern America, there's there are there are reports of unusual things in the in the forest, but they're perhaps not given names like Bigfoot or Sasquatch. And and now people are starting to look more into those reports and and are saying, well, wait a minute, someone saw like a, a large sort of hairy biped in a forest, and and that's essentially what a Bigfoot is. But it it, it didn't get given that name when it was first reported, you know, a hundred years ago or, or more. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's what's so fascinating. I and mean, I can think of a couple just off the top of my head, stories in New England. Now, you know, some of these encounters, people will say is Bigfoot, Sasquatch, because we have that cultural knowledge, you know, since the 1950s, there's been sort of Bigfoot, Abominable Snowman, Yeti, that's been on the brain, so people can kind of identify it. But northern New Hampshire, there's a story called the Wood Devils, you know, in the northern, way northern part of the state, where people report this thing, these things that are tall, hairy, and let out piercing screams at night and that are so so good at hiding behind trees that you could almost walk into one before you saw it. Mm. Uh, so it, it kind of, it fits a lot of the modern Bigfoot descriptions. And there's other stories as well. There's old newspaper reports, uh, the Winstead Wildman of Connecticut, which was a hairy bipedal kind of creature reported to be uh, terrorizing uh, people picking wild blueberries in, in an area of Connecticut. And it kind of led into a, a sort of classic monster scenario where you have people in armed hunting posse trying to search for the thing and kill it. Uh, other stories as well, where people use gorilla or uh, wild man, those kind of monikers yeah. to describe these things that they were seeing. You know, once gorillas became uh, uh, common knowledge, people would start calling things gorilla as well. And you have that across North America. I think a lot of the regions before that, like I said, Bigfoot in the pop culture, Bigfoot in the cultural space was considered to be you know, something else, a wild man. I heard of a story recently, Massachusetts of a creature uh, called the blob, you know, is kind of just described that way. So there's a lot of sort of interesting ways to describe these things. Mm. So where, where you were growing up in New England, were, were you living somewhere that was close to these sort of environments? Was there legends that you heard of? And Yeah. So I, I grew up in Southern New Hampshire and, uh, you know, we're kind of about 35, 40 minutes from the Boston area. So we're kind of right in that, that metro sort of area. And Boston's not a huge city, but uh, growing up, I did hear some stories in the area of south of Boston. There's an area called the Bridgewater Triangle, which I think is probably one of yeah. the more famous sort of paranormal spots. And I, I guess that would be the most, in New England, the most well-known for these sorts of things where you have Bigfoot and strange cryptid creatures and UFOs and ghostly hauntings and swamps and all kinds of stuff going on in the same area. But that's, you know, about an hour and a half south of me. But just the town over from me, uh, which is like a wooded town, there was an interesting encounter in the 1970s, which is actually one of my one of my favorite Bigfoot reports, where uh, multiple nights in a row, people were having their uh, campers shaken by a strange creature. And there were, I believe, three 
primary eyewitnesses that all described seeing a blonde, uh, hairy kind of Sasquatch-like creature. Once it was crouched behind a, a rock wall, of which we have many in New England, uh, the other times it was shaking a camper. And it culminated in a local flea market where a man from just uh, from you know, about 30 minutes away in Massachusetts was camping overnight with his family, intending to set up a flea market stand the next morning. And they had their their truck or their camper shook. And depending on which version of the story you check out, the man exited the, the camper or his truck and something either brushed up against the shoulder or he kind of encountered this creature that smelled like rotting fish and stuck its <laughs> tongue out at him. And, uh, and it sent him, him flying into the truck. You know, he had, he had his sons and his family in the car. So they actually left their trailer there, drove straight to the police station and drove back home to Massachusetts. They were so terrified. The police later investigated and determined it was probably a bear even though he was adamant about what he saw. And actually an anthropologist from Harvard University got involved somehow and uh, began interviewing the sets of eyewitnesses and checking out the property, claiming that they were finding indents in kind of the pine needles and in the ground. And he actually ended up writing a paper called Why Bigfoot Must Exist or something along those lines. Uh, Based on his work with this case, he was convinced that anthropologically that there was such a creature as a Bigfoot. And that that yeah that happened fifteen twenty minutes away from me, so that's always been kind of a a fun story I, I've looked into a little bit, and and I really enjoy that story. Yeah, definitely, that sounds fascinating. So, with the investigations you do and the films that you make, and the people that you interact with when you make them, do you do you get a sense that there probably is? Some, I mean, most times there is something to it, and is it a case that there's perhaps not the resources to investigate these things as much as would be needed to? clearly identify what these creatures are yeah that's a fair question yeah i mean i i I, because i don't really consider myself like an active field researcher so i'm not i'm not one of these kind of people that goes out in camouflage and sets up night vision (laughs) cameras and nothing against those folks at all i have plenty of friends that are into that and and i love going out squatching and i just love being in the woods and being in nature that's that's what i'm all about but the way the way i kind of approach it as a filmmaker is you know you're looking at the history of a region, history of a creature, the the natural areas. You're talking to people who are on both sides of the fence, locals that believe in it, locals that have had sightings, locals that maybe don't believe in it, the quote experts, unquote, you know, that are <laughs> investigating it because they're the ones that probably have more sightings and information. So you're kind of getting a very holistic view of, let's say, a particular cryptid or a particular creature. Um, but yeah, the, if you look at who's investigating it, let's say something like Champ, you have maybe you know less than a handful of uh, amateur kind of researchers that they devote a lot of their own time and money to investigating it. But um, you, you can only imagine if a university, let's say, put in a couple million dollars mm. to investigate something like Lake Champlain. I mean, or specifically look for evidence for a creature. It would probably turn up with more evidence. You just have more resources at your disposal. And that's the thing I think overall, even with something like Bigfoot, sure, you have thousands of people across across the world that are looking into it, but uh, there's very few uh, academics that are kind of throwing their weight behind it or supporting it. So it, it really comes down to the citizen scientists. And, and as we know, there are divisions between the different camps and people don't share data as, as much as perhaps they, they ought to, but uh, that's just one of the challenges. I mean, even though there are thousands of people across North America, the amount of wilderness we have in this country and in Canada and, if you combine Alaska as well, it's just staggering. I mean, in the in the Northeast alone, we like I said, we are some of the most forested states. We have people getting lost all the time in the mountains up here. And then you look at Alaska, you can fit 20 New Hampshires in one Alaska, probably more. You could fit all of New England in there. That's just straight wilderness. So the amount of space there, that's out there, you're really looking for something that's extremely difficult probably to ever prove. And that's, you know, we've been studying it for what, 50 plus years perhaps. So it's been a long time uh, or short time, relatively speaking, and really not that much has turned up. You know, there's a lot of interesting stuff, but there's nothing that will convince science, unfortunately. And, and we know what, what it'll take to convince uh, the scientific community, the body or DNA that's irrefutable. Mm-hmm. So it, it is a very difficult task. I think as well, the one one thing I've, I've noticed is perhaps that there there are people in the scientific community who are interested and would probably like to involve themselves in studies of things like this, but it's just, it, it wouldn't do their career any good to investigate these kind of creatures and what they might be. 
Yeah, I mean, I think to an extent, absolutely. That's why you don't have as widespread of uh, scientific, you know, whether it's anthropologists or biologists, people get zoologists, people getting involved. But there are those brave few. Obviously, we know some of the main guys, people like Grover Krantz and Jeff Meldrum and others. But there's plenty of other folks, and you know, some of them I've met through the International Cryptozoology Conference. People like Anna Nakaris, Dr. Anna Nakaris, um, lots of other uh, people with scientific or academic backgrounds that. Even if they're not looking at it from kind of the, the biological study, they're looking at it from the folklore perspective saying, okay, well, how can we kind of include the stories of these hominids or these cryptid creatures and look at it from that folklore perspective? And you know, maybe some, uh, uh, some people are looking at it from that lens, you know, kind of understanding why humans have a need for these mysteries, whereas others, other uh, academics or scientists that get involved may actually be looking for physical evidence. So there are the brave numbers. And and I'm sure uh, there are plenty of scientists or people uh, in the process of getting their PhDs that are very fascinated in the subject that are maybe enthusiasts. You know, they yeah. don't really participate or they don't put their name out there, but I'm sure they'd be willing to take a look at samples anonymously or, or kind of be armchair researcher sorts of people or throw in their opinion anonymously. There's probably plenty of those types of folks. Cool. So let's get on to Lake Champlain and Champ. You created a, a mini series called On the Trail of Champ. Just tell us a little bit about Lake Champlain and that creature and, and, and that project that you worked on. Sure. Wow. Yeah. I'll say a little bit about Lake Champlain. That's going to be tough. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's probably one of the most interesting things I've ever looked into. Just the, the vastness of the mystery and the, the great irony of it is that growing up, I was always more interested in Loch Ness across the pond there in, in your neck of the woods. I didn't really yeah. think too much about Champ, to be honest. And I think Champ has always kind of flown under the radar. Nessie has got the spotlight and Champ is in number two, the number two seat, uh, and has never really had that much attention. But I think Champ is a vastly more um, in-depth mystery. I think there's just a lot more elements to the, the Champ uh, mystery, dating back even further than some of the main kind of Loch Ness stuff. Uh, mm. So yeah, I, I kind of grew up, you know, three four hours away from Lake Champlain. Visited there a couple of times when I was a kid. Always thought about, oh, maybe there's this Champ thing, but never really considered it. Basically, until I did this project in, you know, 2017, essentially. So uh, I once I got into it, it's kind of you go down the rabbit hole and just keep going, and you <laughs> you become hopelessly obsessed. And I still think it's even now a year after the series uh, was released, I'm still very fascinated by Lake Champlain and the mystery. And uh, to kind of sum it up, Lake Champlain is this, uh, it's one of the largest lakes in North America, actually. I think it's in the top 10. It's about 123 miles long, 12 miles wide, almost 420 feet deep at some parts with uh, a very interesting history. It was uh, formerly covered by glaciers. And as the glaciers receded, it was actually connected to the ocean. And you had many marine wildlife living in Lake Champlain. You had seals and whales and walruses and all kinds of mammals moving in here, as well as many fish species. And some of them perhaps have adapted when the 10,000, 9,000 years ago, the, the lake began to, the, the land began to rise actually. And Lake Champlain was disconnected from the St. Lawrence and this Champlain Sea that it was a part of. So some of the fish species have actually adapted from saltwater to freshwater and you have this legend in this lake of a creature that's gone back hundreds of years. You're described by both sort of the Native American groups uh, inhabiting each side of the lake. You had the Abenaki on the Vermont side and the Iroquois nation on the Vermont, uh, the New York side. And they all had stories about these things. And uh, since people have inhabited Lake Champlain, there have been stories of serpents and strange creatures in the water. And it's always been very interesting to kind of look at those historical perspectives and and yeah, up until the modern day, you know, you have sightings going on and uh, people who are seriously investigating this case. Cool. So, and in regards to what Champ might be, what are the theories of what, what tends to be the, the general opinion of the people that you talked to when you were making the film? So like with Loch Ness and many other lake monsters, the, the kind of the main theory that a lot of folks have is that it could be plesiosaur or some sort of mm. prehistoric marine reptile that has miraculously survived. That's one of the main theories. Um, one of my personal favorites is that it could be a giant turtle <laughs> with a, a kind of a long neck. And a lot of turtles can actually extend their neck. Mm. And that maybe explain why you don't see it as often because they kind of you know, there's massive snapping turtles that live in Lake Champlain as well as other turtle species. And um, 
maybe that explains some of the more elusive behavior. Uh, there's, of course, the theories that it can be all explained away with sightings of sturgeon or distortions in the water, a loon raising its ne- neck and kind of giving off the appearance of a dinosaur-like head. There are huge sturgeon in the lake. There have been up to 14-foot long sturgeon caught in Lake Champlain. So, I mean, by definition, if one of those things was to swim up next to your 10-foot boat, it would be larger than your boat, and it would be, by definition, a monster. But uh, the the sightings that really are intriguing are the ones with the head and neck, uh, even on land sightings. Uh, And, of course, you know, there's the people that believe that it's all just a hoax or it's human kind of imagination coupled with strange weather and those kind of phenomena, misidentifications, like I said. So those are the main sort of theories. There, there's, there's a lot of different ones, but those I say would be the, the top kind of theories. Hmm. And when you were making your film, how, how did you go about sort of telling this story and, and sort of creating a narrative regarding Champ and, and, and these kind of ideas? Yeah, yeah, that was, that was the tricky part because it, I felt like it was such a, you know, once I got into it, it was such an in-depth mystery. There was just so many different elements to it. I had to figure out a way to craft it so that I could get mm-hmm. as much information as I could out while also keeping it interesting with, uh, like I said, the information and uh, the actual researchers because, you know, I accompanied various researchers while they were out there and I interviewed lots of eyewitnesses. And I think uh, given that it was a series format, I had a lot more space to kind of dive into specific areas of the mystery as opposed to a, you know, a feature documentary or something where you perhaps don't have that much uh, wiggle room. So I, you know, one episode would be specifically about eyewitnesses and then photographs and video evidence. Another episode would be more about the research side. And let's say episode five was about kind of local cultural impact. So how people in the area, how they feel about champ, you know, kind of the local stores that will sell champ merchandise, the baseball teams that the Vermont Lake Monsters, that's kind of the local baseball team there in Vermont. So, uh, you know, I kind of tried to cover as many aspects of the mystery as I could while also talking about the history of the lake. Monster aside, it's a very fascinating history with Lake Champlain. Like I said, how it used to be part of the ocean very recently, you know, in terms of uh, geological time, 10,000 years ago is not that much. You know, there would have been humans inhabiting that area around that time when Lake Champlain was actually filled with uh, walruses and and beluga whales and other animals. And we found fossil evidence of beluga whales in Vermont from that time period. So uh, there's, there's really just a a lot of rich history in the area. And then the the history of people there, I mean, the, the Lake Champlain played a critical role in the history of the United States. That's where the U S Navy was founded when the U S was fighting off the British for the first time during the revolutionary war. Uh, and then, uh, the Brits tried to come back again the second time in 1812, and there were ba- naval battles actually on Lake Champlain, and there was very interesting history with that. So it played a crucial role in that time period, and just uh, it's it's always been a naturally beautiful place. I mean, it's such a large lake, and it has so many different rivers and estuaries and marshlands that are part of it. It's a huge, huge ecosystem that's, you know... Uh, bordering Canada and Vermont, New York, and uh, really is just a massive environment. So it's it's a super interesting area. Hmm. So one thing I know about Loch Ness is that over the years, there have been a few photographs. There's a, a really famous photograph of Loch Ness called the Surgeon's Photograph. Is, are there similar photographs of, of Champ? I've read that there's a, a Sandra Mansi took a photograph in the 70s. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the Sandra Mansi photograph... Uh, as with the sturgeon photograph, that's sort of the, the main piece of Loch Ness evidence, mm. although a lot of people discount it because they believe that uh, it was a hoax. So um, t- take with take that with how you will, you know, it's uh, but with the Mansi photograph, what's interesting, it's really kind of the gold standard for, I guess, all lake monster photographs. It's this photo taken in the 1970s of this creature kind of protruding and, and looking or a, an object, we'll say, because it's not certain if it's a creature. And um, I actually interviewed Sandra Mansi for my series. Sadly, she passed away last year, um, but I, was, I managed to interview her for the series over the phone, and she talked about that day and the experience, and they had taken this photograph, and it didn't actually come out to the public until a couple of years later, until the 1980s, when they released it through the New York Times. Um, but the photo was analyzed and was proven that it was not digitally enhanced. So the object that was seen there was actually there. 
whether or not it was a real creature, that's of course the debate, but it's not like the photo was taken and Photoshopped like it might be today. Back then, of course, they couldn't do that. So the digital enhancements would have been probably more obvious were you to do that. So whatever was there was truly there. The question is then how big it was. Was it a real animal? And in my series, you know, I talked to various investigators, people who think that it was a legitimate animal. And then others who are more skeptical will say, well, it could have been a log that was kind of propelled up to the surface. And, uh, and that resulted in making it look like a creature because you do have logs like this that can have kind of the, the appearance when they get withered away of a monster or snake like head. Um, but, but generally the Sandra Mancy photo is looked at as kind of the gold standard for champ. And it's definitely the most famous piece of champ. I guess you could say evidence or one of the greatest parts of the whole mystery, because when most people think about champ, they probably think of that photo. Mm. So when, when you were making your series, how often were you able to go out onto Lake Champlain and did you do any searching for champ yourself? Yeah. So, I mean, we went out, let's see, I went out probably, I filmed the series over the course of four weekends. I want to say um, three during the summer. And I did a winter shoot as well, just to kind of, contrast because i think nobody had really ever done a documentary about champ where they covered the winter season because most of the lake freezes up during the harsh new england uh, vermont winter up there so it's a totally different environment in january that will be in july you know in july it looks like a swamp or a bayou in some parts and then in january it's a frozen kind of wasteland so it's very different um but yeah so we went out with various researchers and we were out on uh on kind of their boats and at night in the swamps and uh, do we had scuba divers and all sorts of stuff. And I was using my drone and we were kind of going around to different areas. We went to a little festival they put on Port Henry, New York called the champ day celebration. It's kind of a local vendor kind of event where they celebrate champ and, you know, just interviewing folks in the area lots of witnesses. And a lot of the, the eyewitnesses, some of the best ones I actually interviewed happened spontaneously. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. there was one where, I'm in Port Henry. I'm just getting some B-roll, just some extra shots of a champ parade float, you know, kind of off, off doing my own thing, just filming. And a guy comes up to me, he says, you know, that's not, not a very realistic looking champ. And I start talking to him. He's like, you know, I, I actually saw champ in the eighties right here outside of town. And his encounter was very, very interesting, uh, describing how he saw this thing on the beach and how it swam into the water and it had, it was kind of black in color and it looked very, plesiosaur like with the flippers and you could see there were scratch marks all over it like there would be on a whale uh it's very very fascinating and then there were other interviews as well that kind of happened spontaneously basically whenever i'm in that area and i do spend some time now going up there uh, my brother is in school not too far from lake champlain so every chance i get to visit him i hop over to the lake and whenever i'm there by the water and i see or i'm in a local business i always like to ask people oh what do you think about champ and I kind of play it off as I don't really know much about the subject because I don't want to immediately say, oh, I'm this guy who was interested in it. You know, I just kind of say, oh, have you guys ever had any champ encounters or what do you think about it? And sometimes you'll get the response where somebody says, oh, yeah, you know, we grew up with this th- with uh, stories about it. You know, my mom saw it, my cousin saw it, whatever. Other times people kind of are a little bit more cautious with you. And then once they see that you're actually serious, then they all kind of open up. So that's, that's always been fascinating. And, and, you know, just because I finished the series about a year ago, doesn't mean I'm still not interested in champ. I still very much uh, see myself investigating that in the future, perhaps in another project or just uh, whenever I'm up there, I like, I love to just be on the water and be looking out into the, uh, in between the mountains there and, and seeing if there's anything in the waters, because it's really just a fascinating place. Mm, I mean, it definitely seems like somewhere that's got plenty of stories to tell and and it's interesting that you talk about the different ideas that people have as to what champ might be i i read a quote that you put on your website about a folklorist called joseph citro who was what what occurred to him was that the monster on land seemed to be different from the monster in the water and that there might be more than one creature and and and, and that that's something that i think is a good way of looking at cryptozoology because quite a lot of the time there'll be an attempt to sort of pin down a cryptid as as one thing. And every example of someone seeing something must be this same creature, but it might be that, and it most likely is, isn't it? That people have seen a variety of things that, and it's probably not all caused by the same creature or whatever it is that's caused these sightings. Yeah, that's, and I love that quote, uh, Joe, you know, he's, he's a great guy. He's a friend of mine and, He's, uh, he's, he knows all about Vermont and the strange story. So Champ, of course, is included in that. And 
And I wrote that blog post essentially, which was about stories stranger than Champ, because you know, when asking these questions about Champ, inevitably, I would hear stories about ghost pirates on Lake Champlain or UFO sightings and abductions that were going on, UFOs coming out of the water in Lake Champlain. So that's kind of where the weirder than Champ stuff came. But yeah, that's a really good point about the fact that maybe there's multiple things going on. I mean, one of the witnesses I, I interviewed, he was like, oh yeah, you know, I saw this Champ creature and it was very plesiosaur-like. But then we also saw this strange eel-like creature, uh, this big snake that we thought was like a rubber pipe. And it moved and, and it kind of jumped in the water and it was 25 feet long. And then there are other encounters of people scuba diving in the lake and seeing giant eels or giant serpent-like creatures. So there very well could be massive eels in the lake as well. And that, that probably accounts for some portion of champ sightings. Uh, there's even one where somebody saw what they described as what looked like a pipe crossing the road and it was just a giant eel-like creature. And even if you look at some of the stories, a lot of the older stories with Champ, uh, it was described more as a serpent, less dinosaur-like. You know, it was more, it, it was actually called the, the uh, Lake Champlain Sea Serpent. That's what the, the, the name was in the 1870s when the newspapers started picking up on it. And, and Champ was at that time famous as opposed to Loch Ness, which was relatively unknown. Um, aside to maybe locals, Champ had a heyday, you know, uh, many years before Loch Ness was in the headlines. So very fascinating. And there very well could be different creatures in the lake. I mean, whatever Champ is, for the most part, the sightings where there's the head and the neck and there's that sort of dinosaur-like appearance, that seems to be distinct from perhaps people seeing the a 14-foot sturgeon, like I said. I mean, there are obviously some Champ sightings that will be explained with something like a big sturgeon and the serrated spine that it kind of has and then uh, the scales coming out of the water that can look very prehistoric, very dinosaur like. But uh, one of the, one of the folks that was scuba diving, Philip Rines, who was an early champ investigator, who's a professor of communications actually in New York was scuba diving and claimed to have seen these giant eels in the water. And that clearly wasn't really the, didn't fit that dinosaur like appearance that champ has, but some of the other encounters, you know, people say it looks like a giant turtle like creature. I mean, there's a video the, the Eric Olson video from, I think, 2008 or so, where there's this strange creature swimming in the water and its head shape, shape and neck changes shapes multiple times. It's longer and then it gets shorter, more dog-like. And uh, it's a very strange. It's like, you know, what kind of animal would morph its head around like that? And uh, some people would say maybe a turtle or maybe something like that. So uh, what it is, is is the question, but maybe there are multiple things going on maybe there are just multiple other animals that are all being explained away as champ that's possible but um, i just know some of the eyewitnesses i've talked to you know some of their encounters have been just so so fascinating with the on land sightings especially mm. just going back to the ufos I'm, I'm interested to hear more about those yeah i mean I, I don't know a whole lot about it but i've heard of People saying, you know, they've seen USOs, obviously the underwater submerged oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> kind of flying out of the lake. And there was a famous abduction case on in Colchester, Vermont, which is close to this thing called the Colchester Causeway, which is kind of this little bike path that goes, it's just a tiny strip of land surrounded by a lake on both sides. And I guess there was a summer camp, and I, I don't remember if it was in the 80s or not, two kids claimed to have been abducted there by aliens at that, right on the edge of the water there. And there have been, you know, other parts of the lake and like many parts of North America, there's lots of UFO activity around Lake Champlain and people seeing that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, that abduction is probably the most notable one in that area that happened, the Colchester abduction. Mm. And is there other supernatural activity around Champlain, like ghosts and things like that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, like I said, with the ghost pirate yeah. ship, <laughs> that, that's something that was really weird. I mean, Every year I go up to Montreal in, in Canada and I always pass by Lake Champlain and there's this one gas station I always stop at in St. Albans, Vermont, which is St. Albans is the town in one of the bays there is where Sandra Mancy took her photo. They were never able to determine exactly which bay, but in that area. And I always go in this gas station and ask the clerks, just kind of strike up a little conversation and say, hey, what do you guys think about Champ and the, and the lake monster? You know, sometimes I'll, I'll hear all these stories saying, oh yeah, I know somebody who had an encounter. Other times it'll be, oh, I don't really know much of a champ, but I know that there's stories of like a ghost pirate ship. I'm like, really? So I started looking into that and there was a time period where there actually were pirates or piracy. You know, it wasn't exactly like the 
the Johnny Depp Pirates of the Caribbean, you might expect. <laughs> but it was a time when there was an embargo with British Canada uh, by Thomas Jefferson's, and uh, a lot of the exports in Vermont were being smuggled up to Montreal. They were using the mountain passes. There's a mountain range that, which you can see from Lake Champlain near one of the tallest mountains in Vermont, Mount Mans- Mansfield. There's a little area called Smuggler's Notch where these these cave systems. And those caves is where smugglers would stash potash and other kind of valuables, and they would use those mountains, maneuver the stuff through, get it into the ships on Lake Champlain, and send it up to Canada via Lake Champlain up to the Richelieu River and the St. Lawrence into Montreal. And those are pirates, and there was supposedly one crew of pirates on a ship called the Black Snake, and they were all armed to the teeth, and they got into some sort of an altercation with either the local authorities or privateers who were sent out to chase them. And a couple of people ended up dead and the pirates kind of gave up and they were all rounded up and many of them were executed. They were hung in, in Burlington, Vermont for the public to see. And this was all in the, the early, um, early 1800s during that embargo. And it didn't last long, but that's sort of Lake Champlain's legacy with piracy. So some people say that there's still the, the, the ghost pirate ship of the Black Snake is, can be seen in St. Albans Bay in that area uh, per the locals. And yeah, it was pretty fascinating stuff. Mm, definitely. I mean, it's, it, it it seems like one of those areas that's kind of like a, they're called window areas, aren't they? They're, where where lots of unusual stuff seems to happen. It's just, and the more you investigate places, it tends, it tends to be that a, a place that has a reputation for perhaps ghosts or Bigfoot or a lake monster, you dig deeper and it has other things like UFOs and ghosts. And I did oh, yeah. an episode of this podcast with um, Andy McGrath, who who, put, who does Beasts of Britain. And uh, yeah. he was talking about an encounter that a woman had with a hairy ape-like creature uh, in Surrey in a place called Box Hill. And then recently I was I was just reading a, a 14 Times and, and that uh, mentioned people seeing ghosts on on Box Hill, and it's it's just it's interesting that these places can have a lot of things going on, and but perhaps a reputation for more for one of them than the other. But but there's yeah. always something always something going on. Yeah, yeah. Andy's great. I mean, he's a friend of mine, and I, I did his show recently too, and we talked a lot about that. And and window areas mm. are interesting. I mean, one thing I did want to mention though is that all along the shores of Lake Champlain. I mean, Lake Champlain is essentially surrounded by two, it's wedged in between two mountain ranges. You have the Adirondack uh, Mountains in New York and the Green Mountains in Vermont. And these are all extremely remote areas, lots of mountains and lots of forests and lots of Bigfoot reports. And then you've probably heard of a town called Whitehall, New York, Mm -hmm. which is of course chronicled in the Beast of Whitehall documentary. And it's been on Monster Quest and Finding Bigfoot. Whitehall, New York is actually... Uh, at the southernmost end of Lake Champlain. And Whitehall is significant for Bigfoot sightings. And there's been a lot, it's kind of considered the Bigfoot capital of the East Coast, or at least the Northeast, uh, because there was the famous, of course, Bear Road incident that happened in the 1970s, where multiple police officers uh, from different agencies, you know, local, uh, state, and even sheriffs had this encounter with this strange creature with glowing red eyes and this Bigfoot-like creature. And there's been lots of sightings in that area. Well, uh, Whitehall, uh, right at the, like I said, at the is right at the end of Lake Champlain, and some of the historic sightings of Champ actually happened in the 1870s, all up and down that section of lake that's right near Whitehall. And the Whitehall Times, the newspaper there, was the one that covered the story about farmers claiming that they were seeing a serpent dragging their sheep into the lake, and there were uh, bounties offered. And P.T. Barnum, the famous showman, put out a $50,000 bounty for Champ dead or alive. And that resulted in armed hunting parties uh, going and scouring that part of the lake and trying to kill this creature. And supposedly one group did and the body sunk and they couldn't retrieve <laughs> it. And and that all happened in Whitehall. And so it's funny now Whitehall is known for Bigfoot, but I recently visited there. And uh, what, what, what strikes you is you go into town and there's all, there's the Sasquatch Saloon restaurant, there's Bigfoot statues and then right down the street, there will be a Champs uh, restaurant, and it's got the logo with the classic mo- lake monster kind of image. And uh, it's it's just funny that you have uh, kind of an area where the cryptids converge. So I, I actually just recently put out a, a post from my website kind of called Whitehall, where cryptids converge, where it's kind of a little visitor's guide saying all the places you should visit if you're interested in the Bigfoot. And then 
the champ stuff as well because they can coincide in that way and it's very fascinating there's you know there's not that many areas where you have all these kind of things going on in one spot so uh, it's very cool to kind of check that out mm, definitely i mean i that sounds like a great place to visit <laughs> absolutely yeah it's 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 just great i mean the, the whole if you're into nature i mean most people when they visit lake champlain they're not thinking about champ and that's probably the biggest difference too with loch ness is most people go to Loch Ness because of Nessie, right? That's the main tourism driver. Whereas Lake Champlain, uh, it already has uh, it tourism. It already has people. People are going there for world-class fishing. Lake Champlain is one of the most biodiverse lakes in North America. You know, 90 plus species of fish, world-class fishing. You've got boating, uh, all kinds of recreation during the summertime. Burlington, Vermont is a beautiful city and it's right on the lakefront. Um, uh, and just, it's, it's a great area to visit, just like I said, for a lot of the recreation. So most people don't even think about champ when they're there and it's not as culturally present as you think. Sure. There are, you know, there's a couple stores that kind of sell champ merchandise and there's the, the Lake monsters, uh, Vermont baseball team with their mascot champ, but it's not like at Loch Ness where everything is Nessie based and Lake Champlain, right. it's, you actually have to seek out, you know, a store that might sell, uh, champ stuff or uh, find a place where there's a ch- little statue for champ or whatever the case may be. Um, and I think that's just kind of interesting to me. And I t- try to talk about that in the series a little bit because people get the impression that you go to Lake Champlain, everything's going to be champ. That's actually not the case. And it's a much, much larger environment overall than Loch Ness. But um, but yeah, it's if you are if you appreciate nature or water or anything like that, going to a place like, Ver- I mean, Vermont's a beautiful state. So there's a lot to see and uh, Lake Champlain, that area, it's one of my favorite parts of the world. So I, I can never complain when I'm up anywhere near the lake, really. Right. Okay. No, it, it's, it, sounds like, it sounds wonderful. Yeah. Maybe I'm making it sound like a, a cryptid kind of Disneyland type thing. But, <laughs> but no, I, I mean, I recently even had someone at the International Cryptozoology Conference in, uh, in Maine where they were saying, oh, you know, I, I've been wanting to go up and drive to Lake Champlain. And I gave him an idea. I said, hey, look start going south to Whitehall. You can check out all the Bigfoot stuff, drive up uh, the, the coast of Lake Champlain or, you know, kind of the shoreline, drive up to Port Henry, which is not that far from Whitehall. Port Henry is the kind of the self-proclaimed home of Champ and they have the sign with all the sightings and little statues. Then you can drive over to the Vermont side, visit Champ's trading post. You can go to some of the historic spots where there have been sightings all the way up to Burlington, go up to St. Albans. So it's, it's, you know, it's just, it's really cool. And, and it's kind of, what's interesting is now you have sort of this cryptid tourism that's kind of uh, sprouting, I guess, in different areas. I mean, I was even recently down in, in Arkansas to Falk, you know, I visited the, yeah. the lair of the, the boggy Creek monster, of course. And that was so interesting. It's, you know, what, I don't think I'd ever really go to a small random town in Arkansas if it weren't for mm-hmm. this for this famous story. So, and I think there's a little bit of that cryptid tourism that's coming into it. And I think that's cool. I think it's cool. The local areas are embracing that um, because, you know, it's always fun when you go somewhere and you see that little bit of local embrace, maybe not as much as in Loch Ness where it's almost, you know, the main drive of, uh, of the revenue, but uh, you know, to a degree, I think it really is a cool thing. No, I totally agree. If you had to come down one way or the other and what you think champ is, Despite what we just said about it probably being lots of things, um, what would you what would you say? Yeah, that's that's always the tough question. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I my like I said, my personal favorite theory is the turtle theory, and I, I guess that would probably make the most biological sense to me if I was going to say, okay, this is a, absolutely a real animal. You know, if this was a plesiosaur or whatever, the chances of something like that surviving in the oceans, let alone in a in a lake, you know, for thousands of years, probably pretty slim, but what if there's some sort of species of turtle that has adapted and that's why you don't see them as often and they stay hidden and they can breathe through their skin or however turtles kind of operate. They don't need to get as much oxygen and you see these things very rarely and they live a long time. So you don't need to have, you know, a thousand animals in the lake. You can maybe have smaller numbers because they probably reproduce a lot less frequently and they live a lot longer. Um, But uh, yeah, that's, that's probably the best answer I can give because you know there's some days where I, I look at it, I'm like okay what if it's all just it's all just conjecture and it's all our want and need for like a mystery to exist and other days you know I'll, I'll watch a, a video I've done or an interview I've done with people or even when I'm up there and I'm like man this place this place is hiding something like if there was something mm-hmm. that were going to be hidden it would be in a place like this 
Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I, I think a, a turtle sounds like a convincing explanation because its body is similar to a, the body of a plesiosaur. It has the, the flippers and, the, and it has that round body. And, they, and like you were saying, um, turtles and tortoises, they can stretch their necks out, can't they? Yeah, absolutely. And there's been some sightings where you know, the neck was smaller or the head is more rounded or even in my documentary, you know, some of the researchers, Scott Martis and, and William Dranginis, they got some kind of strange sonar blip that just was like a blob. It was like a circular body with like what looked like a long neck, but it just kind of swam under the boat and they didn't see any tail or anything like that. And they don't know if it was even a living creature or not. That's, of course, really hard to determine on a, just a, a brief sonar reading of something just going under your boat. But um, yeah, like you said, turtles are, sea turtles are probably the most uh, closely related thing to a plesiosaur that we know that exists. So that, that, that's interesting in itself. You know, there's nothing really, as far as we know, that plesiosaurs are similar, more similar to than, than a turtle. And I mean, the reptiles and some of the behaviors they have might be similar. So. Uh, yeah, it's a good question, but but it's it's such an enigmatic mystery. It's just there's so many elements and aspects to it that even just from the historical perspective, if you're just looking at it from the folklore, let's say, or human history, you're, you're not even saying, okay, I'm not going to consider champs real. Let's say a folklorist or somebody's looking at it. Just looking at it from the people's perspective is so interesting. The stories from the Native Americans to uh, the the kind of the settlers in that area into the modern context, it's extremely interesting, you know, how people have interacted with the lake and what a monster like this could mean for just kind of how people go about their lives and their interactions with a, a mysterious body like Lake Champlain, body of water. Mm, yeah, definitely. So let's move on to your upcoming project, Lions of the East. Let's tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So that is essentially a uh, documentary about the sort of mystery big cats, mostly mountain lions or cougars, pumas. There's a lot of different regional names uh, that are being seen in New England. And this was kind of spurred off of uh, growing up in the area and always hearing stories of people seeing mountain lions. And they're not supposed to be here because they, they used to inhabit this part of the country, but they were uh, extirpated. Essentially, they went extinct in this area, or so we're told, in the late 1800s and when a lot of the deforestation was happening. And, and you know, that the accepted range of mountain lions today is kind of the western states into the Midwest. So they're really not supposed to be around here. But all throughout the East Coast, you have sightings of mountain lions and black panthers and cats that aren't really big cats that are technically not supposed to be there. And um, New England is no exception. And these sightings date back a long time. You know, I've, I've found reports from the 1930s and 20s, even, even though they were supposed to be extinct no later than the turn of the century, 20th century. So uh, I just decided to kind of look into that. I'm like, oh, this is fascinating. There's all this stuff going on. There's, there was a mountain lion that was killed actually in, in the state of Connecticut where I went to school. I remember when it happened, a mountain lion was struck. Uh, maybe it was, it was you know, less than 60 miles from New York City in one of the wealthiest parts of Connecticut, very urban, you know, not very wild area of all the areas in New England. Uh, to to find a mountain lion, this was struck by a car, and the autopsy showed that its DNA, its genetic makeup, was from a group of mountain lions found in the Black Hills of South Dakota, which is very far from Connecticut. So this animal would have traversed more than half the, the United States to reach its demise. So that case kind of put things into perspective and said, hmm, there are it's conceivable that there are lone mountain lions, males that are moving eastward, looking for mates, just trying to make their own family groups. There's no natural predators in this area. There's abundant deer population, so they can just feast and essentially just wander around looking for females, of which there may be none, although some people believe otherwise. So uh, it, it, that's kind of the idea behind the project is kind of looking into the history of the mountain lion subject and the contemporary sightings that are still happening and a lot of the cases that have come up in the past couple of years. So who are you talking to when you've been making this film and to kind of investigate these sightings? What, what kind of knowledge experts are you consulting? Yeah. So I've been talking to uh, local or state fish and wildlife departments. So these are in here in the U S we have, uh, wildlife departments that are part of the state. So New Hampshire, it would be the Fish and, and Fish and Game. So Fish and Game Commission, and they 
monitor the natural kind of resources in New Hampshire and they regulate hunting and these sorts of things. And they've been on some of the animal planet shows like Northwoods law. If you've ever seen that sort of stuff, that's kind of what they do. Other States have different agencies, but they all sort of do the same thing in Vermont. For example, they have game wardens, which are, you know, guys that are kind of appointed to monitor certain areas of the state and uh, monitor the natural resources. And they get a lot of the reports of the mountain lions. So I've talked to quite a few of those individuals for New Hampshire and Vermont and other States as well. I've been interviewing amateur researchers, so people that have either had their own sightings or have just been fascinated by it or know people that have had sightings because I think most people in, in, in much of rural New England, almost everyone knows somebody that's had a sighting. And the amount of sightings are staggering. I mean, I just since announcing this project alone, I've probably gotten 60 people that have told me either in person or online about you know, this person I know saw, had an encounter or I, I had an encounter last year or whatever the case may be. So the amateur researchers, you know, they're the ones that are essentially out there saying, look, we're going to set up traps and, and game cameras and try and get proof. And then I've also spoken to biologists and people who have found verified DNA evidence, a woman who had her horse attacked by a mountain lion uh, a couple of years ago in Massachusetts and has had DNA confirmed uh, that it was a mountain lion uh, and the state of Massachusetts essentially does not really recognize the results. So there's, there's definitely an element of a cover-up, if you want to say, or a conspiracy. And I'm not, and I'm not just saying that to kind of uh, fan any flames. I'm just saying that's, that's what these people involved in these cases have told me. They're very frustrated with the way that the authorities handled it. And there's a general cynicism uh, within the public of saying, well, oh, the states are covering it up or they know they're here. They just don't admit it's money issues, whatever. Um, you know, I'm like, I'm playing all sides of the story. Uh, that's why I'm speaking to the authorities and to the people having the encounters and the researchers, because I think it's important to get all aspects of the story and kind of try and figure out because there's obviously something going on. I mean, there's mountain lions at some capacity, whether or not there are breeding pairs or there are just five lone males that are wandering around New England causing sightings. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, what exactly is going on? I mean, just uh, this past week in New Hampshire, we had a in a little mountainous region about an hour north from me, we had three different people all saw a mountain lion within the span of a week. And the fish and game, the guy actually who I interviewed, I, I just read the news news piece about it. He had said, you know, I can't deny that there's a mountain lion here, but I can't confirm it either. You know, because they're kind of stuck in that middle ground. They can't really, um, you know, like if you said you saw Bigfoot, you know, they, they probably <laughs> would say, well, you can't really confirm it or deny it. There's nothing, there's no definitive proof. So you kind of have to, disregarded i suppose but people know what they saw and then a lot of people especially if they live in these rural areas in the woods they have grown up seeing bobcat and other sort of uh, cat species that we have around here which are much smaller and a lot less distinct than the tail of the mountain lion so uh, i think a lot of people know know exactly what they saw and i've talked to plenty of credible people that have had um, sightings including joe citro you know, mentioned him earlier he had a, a clear sighting interviewed him about that as well and um, yeah people know what they saw why do you think the authorities aren't interested in engaging with this? I mean, that's that's always an interesting question. I don't think it's a simple answer, and I don't think it's a grand conspiracy. You know, like some people maybe, mm. if, if you're watching a lot of sci-fi, you may think that you know, the government is <laughs> in control of everything. But yeah. I, I think it just simply comes down to there's money. You know, a lot of agencies are always cash-strapped, and it's always tough. And you're dealing with things like illegal hunting, which we have a lot of in New England, illegal hunters. Uh, Ticks are decimating the moose population. You've got blip bears that have to be neutralized once they get into people's dumpsters and all sorts of things like that. So adding a mountain lion, which is a, the apex predator, would be the top predator, would be another uh, you know, kind of creature they'd have to deal with. And until there's established proof that there are breeding pairs and that we're going to have numbers like we, they would in Colorado or California, I don't think they want to take it as seriously as, uh, as some people would like. But it does create that that atmosphere of distrust. And um, I think it just, and money's obviously not the only thing, but that's just part of it. I think it's just, it's not, it's not as simply put as uh, it's just a big conspiracy. I mean, the, the, the individual game wardens and the fish and game people I've spoken to, they're great folks. And they say, look, I, I think there probably are mountain lions in New England, but I just don't think there's, you know, 300 of them. There's maybe a few at a time, but they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place because they can't outright come and say, Hey, there are mountain lions. Um, and then they can't really deny it either, I suppose. And that angers a lot of people who are, you know, passionate about what they've seen or 
are afraid for their perhaps their livestock or whatever the case may be. Hmm. I mean, have there been when you were making this this film? Were there are there reports of cats that sound like a more supernatural creature rather than a flesh and blood one? For the most part, it seems more flesh and blood. I mean, there are there, there's the, the entire mystery is pri- primarily focused in the, the mountain lion. So the coloration of the creature seen is the typical uh, cougar kind of color. It's that blondish, tawny kind of color. Uh, mountain lions can, of course, vary in their their fur. Their coat can be lighter or darker. But um, there's you know a minority of sightings where people are seeing a black or a melanistic looking cougar or panther type animal something that you'd see you know in other parts of the world with an animal like the black panther and that and yeah. then mountain lions the puma concolorus the scientific name are not known to have melanism as a characteristic or a trait so and there are still these reports you know lots of people saying oh well we saw a black one i mean it was just like a normal mountain lion it was just completely black and that doesn't really biologically make sense so there's something going on with that too and that's kind of a a mystery within the general mystery because like I said, the majority of sightings tend to be more on the side of uh, what you'd expect from a mountain lion that perhaps you could see in, in other parts of the country where they are known to uh, officially inhabit the area. Whereas the black Panther issue is kind of another topic within it. And I, I'm going to delve a little bit into that, not too much because I think that's almost a separate topic of its own. Right. Yeah, of course. I mean, I guess once something's declared extinct, it can be quite difficult to declare it, not extinct. <laughs> I mean, I, I, yeah, yeah, that's, absolutely. That's kind of the, the struggle with you know because the, the the species mountain lions are not extinct, yeah. right? They're technically they're considered just the eastern mountain lion, which is a subspecies of mountain lions, are considered exurpated, which means they're not in this area anymore. And you have essentially, like I said, the 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 intermountain west, and then out in the Pacific Northwest, that's the established range now. And you have a pocket of what are called Florida panthers living in, in down in the swamps in Florida and um, all the areas in between that, you know, in the South and up to the Northeast, there's sightings all over the place and people are having encounters and, and there's lots of different regional names. So it's pretty fascinating, but it is, like you said, it's very difficult when a species is technically considered extinct to um, get it back or recognize that it, no, it is, it is returned to an area. I mean, why wouldn't it make sense that these animals would return to an area that they once inhabited looking for more food and more resources and kind of expanding their range? Uh, it makes sense. And it, 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 I think it's happening. I mean, it's clear we've had confirmed cases where uh, individuals from those Western populations have made it out here. So it, it's happening to some extent. The question is just how much. Mm, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, across the world, there, are, there does seem to be more reports of animals being sighted for the first time in tens or hundreds of years. I, I know wolves are starting to be seen in more parts of Western Europe now. And, and uh, so it, it does seem that perhaps these animals have been declared extinct and they're starting to reappear. And it's just a case of, like you were saying, that them starting to breed again, I suppose. And and, and that's, why, that's, that's why they remain a mystery. Right. It's like nature finding a way. I mean, you've got things like the thylacine and in Australia and Tasmania and that area, I mean, whether or not the animal never went extinct is the question, but uh, nature somehow finds a way and you'd be surprised. You know, th- that's why the coelacanth, of course, is a yeah. is a very big poster child for cryptozoology in general because it was an animal that was millions of years extinct and then, oh, suddenly it pops up. So uh, so it's definitely very, very interesting to to ponder that. And and I think especially as, as our societies and civilizations were moving more towards urban societies. So a lot more people are moving to cities and rural areas, especially in the United States now, are kind of being depleted and the forestation, there was a lot of deforestation done in the last hundred years. All those forests are bouncing back and creating new environments and animals are moving in and kind of reclaiming their their range. I mean, New England's a good example with uh, moose and bear. I mean, these are huge animals that were basically also kind of pushed out with the mountain lions and they've kind of returned to some capacity and you know, now we have 30,000 black bear in northern New England alone. Mm, that's, that's amazing. I mean, I really want the thylacine to still exist. <laughs> oh, me too. Yeah, that's that would be so cool. I mean, I yeah. hope that someday somebody will find one, but we'll just have to keep paying attention until they do or, or if they don't. I mean, it's really a mixed bag at this point. Mm. Well, Alex, this has been fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. 
Yeah, thanks for having me, man. It was great talking about all these topics. And uh, if anyone's interested, you know, check out my website, Petakov Media. It's just P-E-T-A-K-O-V media.com. That's the best place to follow me on all my uh, social media and kind of stay updated on projects and, and support me. So, so thanks again. Yeah, no problem. Your Champ Films on Amazon Prime, I think. Yes, yeah, it's on Amazon Prime. You can just search on the Trail of Champ and uh, be sure to then check out on the Trail of Bigfoot, which is Seth Breedlove's continuation mm-hmm. of the series. And, and this year, we're going to start production on, on the Trail of UFOs, which is kind of the third iteration of it. So it's uh, it's kind of the mod. I, I like to call it the modern in search of sort of a series. So it's pretty cool. Oh, awesome. That, that sounds fantastic. Well, I'll, I'll make sure to put details of your website and, and the film in the show notes. Appreciate that, man. No, you're very welcome. Thank you, Alex. Thanks. Your humble host is a bit of an armchair fortian. So it's always great to talk to people who are out there in the field, exploring the world and investigating mysteries directly. As a filmmaker, Alexander is also inviting an audience to witness his expeditions and feel more informed and invested in cryptozoology, which he should be applauded for, because these subjects would get very little media attention otherwise. It was interesting to hear how the towns that sit on the shore of Lake Champlain have welcomed the interest that Champ has brought to the area, something that my last guest Aaron Gullius mentioned has also happened in places like Point Pleasant, where communities are embracing their local folklore and mysteries to bring money into the town. At Lake Champlain, it definitely seems to be more thoughtfully planned than at Loch Ness, which must be a relief for the local residents. If you're interested in Alexander's work, I heartily recommend visiting his website and following him on Twitter, and you can find his Champ documentary on Amazon Prime as well. As ever, if you'd like to contact me at Sphere HQ about this episode, or with any ideas for future subjects, or suggestions for guests, please email someothersphere at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify and Stitcher. Likes, ratings and reviews are very much appreciated. Thank you for listening.